this is Dustin Hobbs of the California Mortgage Bankers Association, and welcome to Connect, our monthly podcast featuring interviews with uh, uh, movers and shakers in the mortgage industry. As you know, we're doing a, uh, a sort of an expanded version of our usual monthly podcast. We're doing a weekly podcast here uh, while everyone is uh, sort of stuck at home and uh, working from home and trying to you know, work through the social distancing and the uh, challenges we're all facing with the COVID-19 pandemic. So hope you're uh, all staying safe and healthy, uh, but we've got a great, a great uh, we've actually got two people we're gonna interview today. And uh, um, I'm really excited to hear what they've got to say. It's sort of a, a, a passion of mine, a marketing and branding. It's, it's something that I'm very interested in as well. So I'm really, Excited to see, you know, sort of what their thoughts are on uh, where we're at in the industry and where we're going forward. So let me uh, introduce our two guests first. First, uh, John Soroka. John is principal at uh, Soroka Brand Development. John's also uh, co-chair of our mortgage, our own mortgage technology and marketing committee. John's been uh, really involved with the association for many years now, and and uh, sort of a fixture at our our uh, mortgage innovators conference, and also again the the MTAM committee. And he's been instrumental in its success. So. Uh, John's got a lot of uh, good insight on the industry. We're also uh, excited to have uh, Scott Soroka. Scott is Chief Brand Strategist at Soroka Brand Development, and uh, he sort of uh, is going to give us the, the insights on what he's seeing from some clients and some other folks in the industry about uh, branding efforts, sort of what they're doing right, what they're doing wrong, and, and uh, we'll get into all that here in a second. So, but first, I, I'm really curious. Uh, this is actually, I want to I had this down in my notes to ask you, John, but I think I want to hear from uh, both of you on this. So what's your backstory? How did you guys get into the, uh, uh, what interested you in specifically the branding side of the industry? I mean, obviously there's so many different aspects to mortgage banking and real estate finance. And I'm curious, what drew you guys into uh, uh, the marketing side of the business and what's kept you in there uh, for as long as you've been in there? So maybe John, you want to kick that off? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, it goes back a little while. Uh, I'll start out with, well, I went to Marquette University and shortly after I graduated, Dustin, I had a discussion with my father about what I was going to do with my life now that I had this fabulous degree in my hands, right? So um, he recognized that I really thrived in sales type positions and we started talking about real estate and the mortgage industry. Um, he told me straight out that I'd make a great mortgage loan originator. And I had no idea what he was talking about at, the, at, at that time. I didn't had no idea what that was. So uh, anyway, after he explained it to me and explained what a mortgage loan originator does, how they make money, uh, what's involved, the work ethic that's involved, and all of that, I thought to myself, wow, this is a very serious career. This is an actual career that I could I could really embrace. And I mean, this isn't like my past jobs where I was, you know, like selling windows or or selling stereo equipment at Best Buy or something like that. I mean, this was dealing with real estate. So uh, he introduced me to a client of his um, that talked to me about the business. And shortly after that, I just got to work. Um, I worked with a broker. Uh, they were fantastic. They assigned a mentor to me. She taught me um, a lot about the business, how to earn respect from real estate agents and get them to want to work with me and respect me. I mean, I would go home at night. I'd be studying Fannie and Freddie guidelines uh, in the evenings. I'd be learning about um, guidelines for various portfolio products. And then I'd be giving presentations at real estate offices. And pretty soon uh, I was killing it. 
I mean, I was winning top producer awards and I was doing really well. I was loving it. Um, so uh, I started getting you know, really good at forming relationships and realized that the way to a real estate agent's heart was by bringing them leads. So I would leverage uh, marketing avenues to uh, FISBOs for sale by owners and, and form relationships with them. Uh, and upon you know, gaining their trust, I could lay the groundwork uh, for them to be able to talk to an agent um, that that uh, could refer me business, you know, to a top producing agent of, of uh, somebody I had a relationship with or was uh, or was working to develop a relationship with. And uh, many of these FISBOs, they weren't very successful and they didn't understand the role of a real estate agent. Um, and they were tripping over dollars to save pennies and, and giving themselves unnecessary headaches. Uh, then I'd work with uh, the agent in their open houses, help them uh, with throwing some pretty amazing brokers opens, not quite at the level of million dollar listing brokers opens, but still pretty amazing. And and uh, seeing my success, eventually my father suggested that uh, maybe I would like to help him build the family business. And um, seriously, I at that time, I hadn't even thought about that. I was just so focused on, on my own career and my trajectory and, and just working so hard that I really didn't even think about that. Uh, but then understanding more about what he did uh, it actually came very natural to me because he specialized in working with mortgage lenders and I had a great understanding of the industry at this point. So I understood um, how mortgage companies make money, not just brokers, uh, but the lenders themselves. I understood the grind. I thought it I was going to become a broker eventually. But uh, so actually that combined with my understanding of marketing turned out to be really a perfect match. So that's the backstory. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. You, you sort of went the uh, the route with the, starting on the origination side, learned the whole business, and then came to the marketing side. Exactly. Uh, Scott, how about you? How'd you wind up on the, uh, the marketing end of the business? Well, I've been with the company for about 22 years. I graduated from college and I had some jobs, miscellaneous jobs. I managed the credit union for about two and a half years. And, you know, one day it was, just seemed to be the right time where, uh, again, my father approached me and asked me if I would be interested in becoming a part of the family business. <clears throat> and uh, after a lot of consideration and thought, I decided to make the jump. And I was a production manager for a while. Um, I wore many different hats within the agency trying to find my space because I was just interested in it, but I just needed to find where I fit the most. And we were getting some clients who were talking more and more, not so much about the branding, but about, I mean, the marketing rather, but more about the branding. And we came to the conclusion over time that there's a lot of brilliant marketers out there, but they really don't necessarily understand the significance and impact of what brand is and what it means to the organization. So I personally began to study, really study and research branding and into great depths to really understand what makes some companies great, why do companies fail, how to motivate your team to become a better organization. And I got into the many moving parts and many, many mechanics of what it meant to own and live a great brand. And that has become my second religion and my passion and that is where I choose to focus my efforts exclusively is 
Uh, I understand the marketing, I understand uh, the PR, but not to the depths of you know a couple of our people, but on the brand side, that is something that I love to do more than anything else, probably on earth right now. Also helping companies develop really good cultures. I was in leadership effectiveness training. Um, this, this has been a very personal journey for me, not so much corporate. You know, people want to know if, if, uh, if you were making tons of money, money wasn't an issue, what would you do? This is what I would be doing all day, every day. So whenever I have a new opportunity to help a company out, build a better brand, a stronger brand, I'm all over it and uh, very passionate about that course. That's really cool, Scott. That's I love hearing that, you know, that that's, you're actually doing what you, you know, you would dream to do. Like you said, if you, yes. if money was no object, you'd still be doing it. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so uh, question for you, John. Um, obviously, we're right in the midst of all the, uh, um, I mean, the daily headlines are as negative as it gets right now with uh, the pandemic and uh, the uncertainty in the business community. Um, I'm curious, you talk to your clients and prospects every day. What's your sense? Are they, you know, more pessimistic, more optimistic? I know we had a few weeks ago, you know, there was a lot of concern, an acute concern about the uh, uh, margin call issue that sort of put everyone sort of on a knife's edge. And we're, you know, it seems past that, but do you sense that we're sort of in a more optimistic mode now, or is it still kind of wait and see? I will tell you, Dustin, look, everybody realizes that there's trouble ahead, no question about it. Uh, the economy is going to open up in phases. Social distancing is going to stick uh, for a while, and that's going to create problems for the food, entertainment, travel industries, um, and, and owners, entrepreneurs. They're working in the red as they renegotiate leases, and then uh, commercial property owners are going to be left dealing with that and kind of holding the bag. Airlines won't be operating at capacity. Um, conferences, uh, attendance, are, it, that's going to be compromised. So you can look at just about every industry through this lens. And it's easy to see how the real estate industry is going to be affected because there's only so much the government and employers can do to keep people in their jobs and ultimately keep people in their homes, right? I mean, what's happening now, it's a big transformation um of how we as a society are interacting and going about business there will be many jobs that are never going to uh, come back again because even if we were completely open for business entrepreneurs have learned how to adapt their operations sorry about that no problem to adapt their operations to function in a way that may not require uh rehiring of many people uh, but look, now is the time to reinvent yourself. And how do you do this? You know, simply focus on what you can control. You can't control a virus. You can't control a terrorist uh, attack or a flood or any other act of God. Um, you have to, uh, you know, you have to, you have to, you have to just control the controllables and control how you react to these various issues. So really take stock of yourself and what you're good at and what you enjoy doing and turn it into something that people will actually pay you for. We've learned a lot going through this. We were thrust into an environment, Dustin, where we had to figure a lot of things out very quickly. Um, a lot of innovation has taken place. Uh, and frankly, 
it was all innovation that was going to happen at some point anyway, but this whole pandemic thing just really sped everything up. And I think that, uh, I, I, I think that it's a, I think that it's a positive thing. Do you think that no, you see any uh, similarities as far as it's a positive thing? But I think that the innovation is positive. Yeah. Do you see any similarities as far as the optimism pessimism uh, um, split between now and the financial crisis in two thousand seven eight? Um, I mean, you were around for that. You had clients back that went through that back then. What was your sense as far as you know? Back then, was there more, in a sense, despair about uh, the next six months than we're at now? I mean, that's sort of the sense I'm getting, but I'm curious, is that what you're hearing too? I hear a little bit of that, but you know, look, I mean, you can't really compare the two. It's two totally different things. You know, it's, uh, it, it's a different situation. Yeah, I think almost because we had that just, it's only been, you know, 10, 10 plus years. Uh, there's a lot of people that are in the industry right now that went through that, and I get the sense that there's a lot of, you know, this too shall pass. We'll get through this. We'll be all right. I just talking to some of our member CEOs and presidents. That's that's sort of the sense I get. Right, right. I agree. That's true. It's absolutely true. It will pass. Obvi well, obviously, it's going to pass. Yeah. Yep. Well, I mean, I remember back in 0708, there was always you talk to some people sometimes, and there was a sense that I don't, I don't know where we're going to be tomorrow. Are we going to be, you know, will there be a, a real estate economy and uh, a uh, mortgage market? So right. I, it's well, good to hear. I, think that I feel the same way that it's, you know, people are more uh, optimistic these days about even the, the near term, I think, as far as things opening up and, and uh, where we're going to be out here in maybe six months or 12 months. We came it's into this right. with a really strong economy, uh, the housing industry. Strong. So look, you know what? Like I said, control the controllables. That's the way you have to move through issues like this is that you can't control all of these external things. You can only control how you handle it and how you deal with it. Yeah, I agree. Uh, so Scott, I'm, I'm curious here, um, looking sort of maybe outside the industry, um, where would you, where do you see uh, uh, brands and companies that are doing things right and doing things wrong? And, and maybe why do you, why are they doing those things wrong? And, and uh, I'm just curious to sort of get the perspective outside our industry. I think that any brand that is living its mission and purpose, um, you know, Simon Sinek had his book, Why. So if, if you're living your why, those companies are really successful. And those who understand their why can bear any how. And I'm just a big believer in that. And, and just touching on the, the previous subject, I think that any brand that thinks about how they can adapt to a crisis, how they can adapt to opportunities, I think you're going to survive. So I think it's very important to do that. You, you know, if, if you read just about any branding book, you hear Southwest, Zappos, Amazon, Apple, Ritz-Carlton, John Deere, Costco. I mean, they're, they're leading their categories and they're doing it for a reason. It's, and it's not because of a sequence of really good decisions made at the top. It really has every absolutely everything to do with leadership, their purpose and making sure that everybody in the organization embraces it and believes in the brand. So if you take Ritz-Carlton, for example, their brand is ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. That has been their brand for, for so long and they live it, they empower their people to live it, they encourage it, they incentivize it, they do everything in their power to make sure that their 
guests are treated with absolute royalty no matter what. And their their employees, I understand, are given a budget every month to do special things, kind of like the Disney way. Um, so there, you know, there's a lot of great hotels out there and not not to knock any of them. But when you think of pure luxury, Ritz-Carlton is typically number one. I think Four Seasons is up there too. So it's really living the mission and purpose. I'll give you an example. I mean, if you were to, you know, BMW for a long time had the tagline, ultimate driving machine. And, you know, I guess any car company could adopt that, but BMW knew how to live that brand. And if you were to take one for a test drive and maybe it was a little bit loose in the corners or maybe the acceleration was a little off or maybe thing, you know, the door didn't slam, you know, with, with, with solid confidence. Well, it's not really an ultimate driving machine. It's just, you know, another car, but you pay a premium for certain brands because you are willing to pay for the quality and the level of service. So to answer your question, I think that brands that are going to succeed no matter what, are brands that understand their why, understand their purpose, and they will do whatever it takes to live it because that's what separates a company that has a brand and a company that just states, states something that sounds nice, but eh, they kind of live it okay, but not all the time. Right, right. Sort of a, uh, it's mm -hmm. either an empty promise or one that you're actually fulfilling with your culture. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so next question again for you, Scott. Um, I'm curious to know what your thoughts are as far as the differences, and I mean maybe this is you know strategic or or uh, you know uh, maybe even philosophical or tactical. What's the difference between building a brand and then maintaining that brand? Building a brand is, I'll define that as the process of identifying distinctions that make a noteworthy and positive difference in the lives of your customers and clients. Um, if you do that very, very well, and if you know how to differentiate your brand very well, you'll be very, very successful. And one thing that I tell all my clients is that, okay, so we've had our day of discovery, we've had a lot of discussions, and here's your unique value propositions. And on paper, you know, they really don't look very exciting anymore. They really don't. But when you talk about maintaining and living the brand, it has to do with, okay, so let's, let's take a simple one, for example. So the company says we're easy to do business with. So I'll challenge the company. I'll, I'll challenge the leadership in each of the key departments. How can you in your individual department improve things so that you can be even easier to do business with than you are today? And we create a culture of people, and I start what I call a movement, where people become very engaged and very excited and thinking of ideas about, well, can we improve our process? Can we improve our systems? Can we improve our communication? Can we improve um, our operations? Can we streamline things? So when you put a challenge out to a group of people with a lot of enthusiasm and say, this is our brand, we need to do even better at it because it's easy to say we're easy to do business with, but it's a lot harder to actually live that and mean it. So therein, therein lies the distinction. So whatever your value propositions are, learn how to live those value propositions. Put something behind them. So what, what does it mean to be caring? What does it mean that we have great communication? What does it mean that we have great client service? 
that that doesn't it doesn't mean anything to people unless you put some substance behind it and people actually live it and they experience it and what do you earn by that referrals recommendations great word of mouth marketing you become um you build a reputation of being a great place to work you build a reputation of uh really taking care of your clients and customers which is what they really value the most yeah you know to dovetail a little bit um off of that if i may dustin sure. uh, for lenders especially it's challenging okay to stand out because you really can't do that based on product or technology at least not in a sustainable way because uh even if you're ahead for a second in either of those areas they're going to catch up to you really really quick so uh this is a common thing actually and it's it's happened to me not too long ago and um more than once um so i was talking with the ceo of a mortgage company and they were struggling with developing awareness and trying to stand out which is uh, a pretty common problem um this particular ceo he was looking to hire los that could bring great local referral relationships with them and as he stated in return for one of the best compensation packages in the industry so i asked him you know, why should these los come to work for you besides the compensation and he talked about things like fast closings he talked about um they do you know everything for the customer emphasizing their great service talked about quick response times their technology platforms pretty much everything that you would expect to hear from from every lender right so he wasn't saying anything different than anybody else but what i never hear about in these conversations dustin is i never hear about things like community involvement great training or mentorship programs um success stories about how anyone has advanced their careers uh within this company as a result of the programs in place or as a result of their their great culture um what they do to make their company great to work for uh, and why they are respected or admired in the community or amongst their, their peers. And uh, an interesting study by Glassdoor actually, one of the most striking things that they found was that across um, all income levels, all income levels, the top predictor of workplace satisfaction is not pay, but it's the culture and the values of the organization. And that's followed up uh, pretty quickly by senior leadership um, and career opportunities uh, at the company. So you really have to ha have a good handle, as Scott was saying, on your USPs, uh, your unique selling points, your key messages, uh, in in the essence of your brand. Yeah. Well, and you know, back to to culture there, um, and I. I you know, completely agree with you guys that culture is so key to building the brand, not only just within the internal, but your external, you know, face of the company that's, you know, influenced so much by the culture of the company. Um, and I don't know who, which one of you wants to take this, but I'm curious to know, you know, do you guys see when you see sort of the, the degradation of a brand, is it most often because of a culture issue or something else? I have to imagine it's mostly culture, but I'm just curious what, uh, what you guys are seeing. I think it has a large part to do with the quality of the leadership. Um, when you see a brand that's lost its way, well, maybe it never really had a mission and purpose. Maybe it never went through the process of identifying why do we exist. And 
I think that is absolutely critical to to survive in such a com highly competitive and oversaturated industry, um, which happens to be quite a few different industries right now. But you have to be able to understand, you have to be able to, to answer the question, why exactly should people do business with us versus all the other options they have available? And when we engage prospective, you know, prospective clients, you know, into that question, you know, well, what are your value propositions? Well, unfortunately, for the most part, they kind of look and sound the same as everybody else. And that's where we need to come in and help them go through that process. And the, the why do you exist is very critical as well. The, the people, employees need to have a strong leader with a strong vision, uh, who leads with conviction, who leads with purpose, and the employees need to believe in the direction people, the employees need to embrace the brand and they need to know um, why they're doing what they're doing, why they come to work every single day. And when that starts getting soft or gray or when they don't hear from leadership as much anymore and when things are going a little bit haywire and they don't understand why, that tends to be a large issue. We, we had a client not too long ago where we did a what's called a brand and culture insight assessment. And instead of, you know, the last question is if you would like to discuss the your answers to this questionnaire, um, please give us your name, you know, and best way to contact you either email or phone or however you'd like to contact. The CEO delegated that conversation to somebody two titles removed from him. In other words, the CEO, not reachable. I'm not talking to you. And it was, it's only a company of about a thousand employees, which it's big, but it's not that big where you really can't talk to 14 people who really want to talk to you about, you know, the culture survey. I think that's an issue. So it, it, I think you need clarity and I think that you need strong leadership in all those different categories. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. That's interesting. I mean, that's definitely it's something you can't delegate from you know the top building your brand and in you know creating those uh, uh, selling points and you know your why I, I totally agree um, John question I have to tell you that the excuse me Dustin I was yeah. going to add to what Scott said real quickly but that particular survey Scott remind me I think that um, we got what like a twelve percent was that the right. response we got after like it doesn't we went to the we went to the entire staff two i think like three times wow. and asked them to fill out that survey not us but the ceo did right scott well the ceo when i when we did finally have a chance to speak with him on the phone his reaction was that he just had some whiners okay <laughs> that's that that's <laughs> great retelling and that's that you know i i don't know if i can help you if that is your attitude and your position on people who they took the time to take your survey. They said they want to talk to you, and you're saying go talk to somebody else. Yeah. I, <laughs> Yikes. There's only so much you can do. Yeah, no kidding. All right, uh, let's uh, switch gears here a little bit. John, uh, give us sort of your your uh, philosophy on the difference and uh, maybe the similarities and and uh, challenges, unique challenges for uh, uh, B2C and B2B marketing. Sure. Well, first of all, uh, we're all consumers, right? So it's really 
it's always human to human, no matter what. So whether you're looking for a new car or looking to purchase a CRM, you want to be spoken to as an individual. You want, you know, you want whoever's, um, you want whoever's marketing to you to understand what your needs are, what your pain points are, what's really important to you, um, and the problems, the problems that you need solved. Uh, and this is true whether you're sitting at your desk at work or sitting on your couch with your iPhone. Some of the similarities I would say between B2B and B2C marketing would be like, for one, uh, you need to build trust. If you're going to do business, uh, you need to build trust. Uh, without trust, nothing else matters. That means that you have to place your customers ahead of profits. Uh, you have to create a positive impact um, at, in your community uh, and also listening to your customers. So another one, you have to be able to build a relationship with your buyer. And I don't mean a relationship where you like hang out together. I mean, let's not turn this into a weird thing. I mean, like a relationship in terms of the touch points with your company. So you want to make sure that you establish very high quality touch points, meaning every time your prospect sees an ad, uh, a video, a blog post, infographic, article, um, every time they call your company or have interaction with your customer service rep representatives, um, all of these, they have to be very high quality contacts that, that build a positive image of your brand. Uh, also, also, you've got to be able to solve a problem. And, but you have to prove that. How do you prove this? You do it through testimonials on your website. You have case studies, uh, word of mouth, um, also star ratings on Facebook and Google, Yelp. Uh, optimally, also, also optimally, what, you know, another similarity is um, the, uh, the marketing philosophy, okay? So optimally, whether you're a B2B or a B2C company, you should leverage omni-channel marketing alongside a multi-channel effort. So uh, your audience is able to contact you through any channel that they wish. But, you know, just to be sure you understand the differences between the two, because they, they might sound very similar to, to a lot of people, um, omni-channel really means that each channel used by any one individual works alongside the others and updates them. Okay, so that creates a unified message around the consumer. The consumer is at the center of an omni-channel marketing strategy. Uh, and that creates uh, also relevancy. It's Omni-channel is like a web, okay? Where multi-channel is different because it's more like an octopus where you have the head and you have the tentacles of the octopus and each tentacle represents another communication channel and these channels don't communicate with each other or touch each other okay so many companies they start out with a multi-channel strategy because it's it's frankly it's easier to implement cheaper to implement but the goal needs to be omni-channel so that the consumer feels loved and they feel heard um let me see, another similarity would be post-sale or you know, post-closing in our industry, right? Uh, post-sale or post-closing communication really needs to happen so that you can continue to build loyalty. 
Uh, and that's, uh, that's especially important for lenders. It's especially important for lenders and, and especially from a loan servicing standpoint as well is to uh, continue the relationship. Um, marketing and sales need to be aligned. That's another thing. Uh, very important, no matter what, what industry you're in, where you are, they both need to be aligned. In fact, this is something that's very problematic in many organizations. The two departments work independently of each other, and then salespeople or originators, they spend time looking for content um, that doesn't exist, and then they land up creating their own content. Uh, and there's this recent stat that I read that sales and marketing alignment actually drives 208% more value from marketing. 208%. That's a lot. That's really, that's really significant. Also, um, you need to build buyer personas to be successful because with them, you can demonstrate to different, different people that you understand their needs and their concerns and you can deliver the right message to them. And it goes back right back to what I said at the beginning. A lot of these like build off of trust or all of these put together help you build trust. Um, with B2B specifically, it's, it's different because now you're marketing to a group of decision makers in a B2B setting. Um, marketing can capture you, you know, your attention emotionally, like, kind of like in B2C, but there's gonna be more of a drive towards logic uh, behind the purchase because of what's at stake when the purchase is made. So, you know, when, when you think of B2C, uh, B2C marketing can have more, it can have more of an emotional bent to it because buyers tend to be looking for an emotional ROI. However, when it comes to big ticket items, like what we're dealing with here, buying a home, uh, considering options for financing, uh, that emotional bent needs to be well-balanced with logic and well-grounded in logic and a lot of trust building to make it happen. So with B2B, you know, when you're selling a CRM or a POS technology or something like that, or any other products or services, uh, you think more in terms of, you think more in terms of ROI, in terms of, you know, time to market, uh, customer support, um, availability and, and bottom line profitability. So, you know, some other differentiators I can think of, you know, real quickly would be like the sales cycle, for example, at B2B sales cycle, much longer, much more expensive. Um, I think it's pretty obvious why, because you're, you're, you know, marketing to a group of people um, that are all playing a role in the decision. Um, B2B content uh, is typically more educational in nature, uh, whereas B2C, it's more fun. But again, you're dealing with, with high ticket, a high ticket item here. Uh, so it's more of a considered purchase. Uh, therefore, it demands more of a focus on education as well. You know, I mean, look, there's a difference between the way an investor buys a property um, who's focused on cash on cash return, right? Versus a newly married couple. Yeah, totally different market, totally different borrower profile. I know we've had this issue just in the uh, um, in our advocacy efforts over the years since that I've been here is uh, when you talk to state legislators even, you know, they don't often understand at first the difference between those two consumers, the, you know, the commercial uh, real estate uh, buyer and the residential, like you said, the, you know, newly married couple buying their first home. It's just a completely different market. I mean, the newly married couple 
the education, the lack of education between that and the commercial real estate buyer, I mean, it's just, it's night and day. It's, you know, apples and oranges. So that's, uh, it's really interesting, John. I, I appreciate that. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, a lot that I'm sure we could talk about. We could go on for, you know, another hour just on the differences between uh, uh, B2C and, and B2B. Um, but I want to turn to Scott, I've got a question for you. Um, so John talked a lot about trust and and uh, and uh, uh, what goes into the marketing and the branding of a uh, whether again a B2C or a B2B. But what if I'm starting a let's say I'm starting a company from scratch uh, and I don't have that trust built in, I don't have any of that really built in. What would you say? What would be sort of the the three key things or or just a couple of things that I should uh, uh, keep in mind or tips to um, to follow? Yeah. First thing you have to do is, if you're starting a company from scratch in this industry, you, you really have to ask yourself, why am I doing this? Um, I could go to work for another company and I could become very, very wealthy and, and make a great living. I wouldn't have the stresses of being an entrepreneur, being a business owner, dealing with the culture and all this, all the chaos and headaches that comes with owning and running a business. So you're starting a business because what are you offering that is better than or unique to the many companies that you are competing with. So what is your mission and what is your why? What is your purpose? That's the first thing you need to do because that is, you know, some people say, well, there's plenty of business to go around. You know, sure, you know, sometimes there is, but sometimes there's not. So going back to my phrase of those who understand their why can bear any how. And I think that is in incredibly critical to understand why you're doing it. Um, that would be step number one. Step number two would be think through, and you have to do this, think through what are you gonna your what will be your unique or just your value propositions. Being unique in this business is I don't want to say impossible to do, but it can be extremely challenging. I'd rather uh an entrepreneur or business owner think of what are the top two th or three things that I can do better than anybody else? What is your passion? What do you love to do? What can you motivate your people to do to make a difference? One example that I have is, is a company that built its brand completely around caring. And to my knowledge is doing very, very successful. And what we did is we when, when we collectively came up with the brand, we did something called the brand validation, where we took that brand and the theme around the brand, and we took it out to uh, some stakeholders, some, some uh, realtors and customers and what have you from different perspectives. And what, what does that mean to you? you know, what do you expect when you have a brand that is moving forward with this kind of a brand statement? Uh, you know, is it confusing to you? What does it mean to you? And if you weren't currently a customer or client of the brand, would you be motivated to do business with this company based on this kind of a brand? So that's a validation exercise we go through, which is a whole different topic. But I think that you need to create, you need to think through your value propositions and how you will deliver them because you are going up against some very successful companies and you need to figure out a way how you're going to stand out. The third thing of course is, building your business plan. You know, whether it's a one-pager or a 400-pager, build out the business plan and make it centered and focused on the brand and on your purpose. The, re the reason people buy or don't buy or they do business with or they, 
they choose not to do business with is all based 100% on brand. Brand is everything that you do. It is the reason people buy or don't buy. It is central to everything that your company does, no matter what industry you are in. If you nail those three things, you are 95% of the way there. Now you just have to find the people who are going to want to work for you and who will embrace their brand and believe in your brand and will share the level of passion and determination that you have to make your company succeed. And it, I often say brand is 100% internal because you have to have everything together internally before you even go outward with your marketing, which is the promotion of your brand messages. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, that's so crucial. And I've seen that just in, in my experience, seeing so many companies miss that part what you just said scott that they don't have that they don't have their own company they don't have the ambassadors and the champions within their own uh, staff ready to go ready to deliver that message and then they just you know they, they fail because of that um, i'll give you a couple of, yeah i'll give you a couple of quick examples um two different companies completely different companies one of which is a leader who is very eq driven um she runs a very successful company has great people, turnover is extremely low. She has a servant leadership leadership mentality, very team oriented, and she has a knack. I mean, her brain is just wired for running a great organization where people love to come to work every day, they do their best, and even in the toughest of times, they muscle through with her. And again, very successful company. I also know a business owner who makes it very, very clear I am not here to be your friend. We are not a family. We're not doing picnics. Picnics. We don't get together for our holidays. The only reason we are here is to kill our competitors. That is it. And if you want a work-life balance, if that doesn't fit with you, then you can go right now because let's not waste each other's times. Unbelievably, they're both very successful. She hires a certain mindset. He hires a completely different mindset and they're off going their own ways. So when you think of culture, when you think of purpose, it doesn't have to be soft and nicey-nicey as a lot of people think culture has to do with that touchy-feely stuff. Um, it can also be the more aggressive nature as well. But as long as whatever that is, you hire people who get it, and you hire people who share that frame of mind, if you will. That's really interesting. That's really interesting. I thought I kind of thought you were going the other direction there. That uh, that one company with the, you know, more aggressive mentality was going to be a failure. But that's interesting. As long as everyone's sort of on the same page and you know buying into the culture, no matter what the culture is, you can be a success. Right. That's interesting. Um, yes. So maybe a final question here. We're going to run a little short on time here, but uh, I've got a question for you, John. Um, you're one of the uh, uh, the folks I know that attends many many conferences every year. That you know, you're a great uh, sort of in-person networker and uh, marketer. How do you how do you sense that uh, networking strategies are changing here when we're all sort of like right now, we're all in our either our houses or like I'm in our office right now, but there's nobody else in the office. And, you know, in-person conferences at this point are going to be, you know, few and far between depending on, you know, what state you're at and uh, where they're at in sort of the reopening process. But what what are you doing to network in these, uh, in, you know, in uh, during the pandemic? That's a great question. That's a really great question. You know, Dustin, I think that um, 
look, LinkedIn has a lot of features that allow you to connect in a very substantive way to form relationships. And um, I can tell you that a lot of people don't really know how to leverage a lot of the features that LinkedIn really has to offer. So I guess I would really encourage people to investigate, investigate that and really learn about all the nuances and all the features that are available to you. Because um, I'll tell you, Dustin, I spend more time leveraging LinkedIn uh, now than I have ever have before um, and engaging much more with people. Um, I spend I spend time reading what people have to post to see what they're up to and what's important to them and then interacting with them, uh, starting with a comment and then connecting, exchanging uh, DMs with them. So, you know, I, I mean, I've, did, I've done all this before. I, I've been are doing you all seeing, this. I'm curious, though, are you seeing more engagement on LinkedIn? Because I know you've been, you know, big, uh, you know, big on LinkedIn for years now. Are you seeing more engagement these days? I would say yes. I would say yes. Um, I see more people taking the time to comment, not just you know like people's posts, but actually comment and actually interact with them, which is I think it's a really positive uh, thing because that's what it, it that's what it's there for. That's what it's kind of meant for. Uh, and I think that your ability to learn and to learn all of the different features and to really embrace it and use it, I think is so important. So I don't know, that's that's the first thing that comes to mind because let me look, what are you gonna do? You have to you have to get social. You have to embrace social media. You aren't going you can't create a conference out of thin air. Right? Uh, a lot of people aren't gonna there's 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 conference cancellations all over the place. It's it's become just mind-blowing, just totally mind-blowing. Yeah, so well, even I, when conferences come back, I think a lot of them are going to be either, you know, 100% virtual or, you know, at least for the time being, sort of a, maybe a hybrid version of that. And to your point, I mean, there's going to have to still be sort of that virtual or social media-esque uh, uh, connection. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said earlier, you can't control all of these external things that happen, pandemics and whatever, and, and floods or anything. You can't control uh, these acts of God, right? Uh, but you can control how you react to them. And you need to think, you need to become more innovative. Uh, you need to think outside the box and get a little bit out of your typical comfort zone. Because guess what? You're not going to be able to go and hang out with the same people that you used to like in person um at the at the parties and you know at the networking events and everything else. you're not going to have an opportunity to do that so you have to you have to put yourself in a different position and not just be like oh well you know i there's nothing i can do about it well yes there is something that you can do about it you can get better at using social media you can clean up your profile page and there's so many articles uh about um how to make your linkedin pages uh more attractive your company page and your personal profile page uh and how to really be beef them up so yeah I, I would say you need to you need to focus on that and you know maybe beefing up your facebook profiles and and leveraging facebook more so there's so many different things that you can do if you think about it 
Yeah, well, and to your point about Facebook, I mean, I think that goes back to, again, are you a, a B2C company or a B2B? If you're, if you're B2C and you don't have a Facebook page that's really uh, built out and, you know, interactive with your customer, then, I mean, you're really missing out. Right. That's absolutely true. Right. Um, so, John, question for you. We've got, uh, I mean, you're, again, as I mentioned earlier, you're co-chair of our, our Mortgage Technology and Marketing Committee. You've seen, you know, a lot of new and, and exciting technologies over the last couple of years, and you've been to our Mortgage Innovators Conference. You've been to other uh, trade shows in the industry. What would you say is maybe the number one uh, most innovative technology that you're excited about these days? Um, you know what? There are certain technologies that I'm really keeping an eye on um, from a from a marketing standpoint, from a CX standpoint, and a UX standpoint. So, I, I here here's three of them. Okay, voice search is one. Um, this is important because it plays such an important role now in SEO, and marketers need to focus on the intent of search, and then make sure that they have the content to match that. And uh, it's so important because you have to develop content. I always tell our clients and, and prospects, you have to develop content for each part of the buyer pathway. And a lot of marketers, they get focused on, you know, one part or another part of the pathway and they develop all of their content in specific areas, but you have to develop for each part of the buyer pathway. So anyway, voice search is very important. Keep an eye on voice search. Another one is chatbots. In the next five years, I think that they are going to absolutely explode even further than it is today because, I mean, they're being used big time today, but um, they, they come with personalities. Uh, they're becoming more intelligent and they enhance the overall customer experience. So I think chatbots are going to be big. Another one is AI and machine learning. Um, data analysis is becoming more efficient now, which means that marketers can deliver hyper-personalized messages to their audiences. Uh, it's, it's no longer acceptable to just insert somebody's first name in the subject line of an email. Um, and a company name somewhere in the body of the email. Personalization includes dynamic content, meaning content that changes according to individual history, uh, past engagement uh, with your brand and individual circumstances. So, um, you know, as time goes on, more marketers will set up predictive lead scoring and deploy more complex trigger-based campaigns as a result that's fascinating interesting all right well uh, i think to find out more about uh, uh what john's talking about you know it goes without saying that you should be you know uh paying attention to our mortgage technology and marketing webinars which we produce on a monthly basis that john moderates and we cover a lot of these topics and and we'll continue to cover them uh, throughout the rest of the year and beyond um john question for you if uh I mean, well, right now, obviously, in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of all of the activity going on in uh, in our state legislature, in our with our regulators, with the governor, and then obviously at the federal level with Congress and the administration, there's a lot of uh, um, attention right now and advocacy efforts within the industry. Within the industry, but you know, as I'm sure you see too, you know, we've seen here, you run into folks in the industry who don't see the value in advocacy or in supporting groups like the California MBA or the National Mortgage Bankers Association. 
I know you're a big supporter of both, so I'm curious, what would be your your sort of elevator pitch to someone, you know, a colleague in the industry that doesn't see the value in those groups or in advocacy uh, work in general? You know, it's a really big mistake. You have to engage. You know what? I would say that the most important piece of advice that I would give anybody is to become a men, uh, become a member and engage. And that's an important statement, engagement. Because a lot of people, they join uh, the California MBA, they join a lot of other state or organizations, they join the MBA, but they don't actually um, engage and become actually active uh, from an advocacy standpoint or any other standpoint. Uh, so that's the most important piece of advice I could really give. Um, join committees and actually participate in them because that participation is recognized by everybody and it's it's how people get to know you when you have that camaraderie. It helps you build critical relationships with uh, industry movers and shakers um, that can help you and help your career and will be there for you when you need them as well. But first they need to know who you are. So again, participate in the committees, go to the networking events, um when you can and provide value just network and provide value and engage yeah, i couldn't agree more and I, we see that here i'm sure and we see that you know i'm i would imagine at the uh, national mba they see that with many of their members that they like you said they join and then they just don't engage and they don't see a you know at the end of the year when they get the renewal notice do they see did i get value out of this year and then you know you got to ask yourself what did i put in and to your point, I mean, if you engage with the association, I've yet to meet an association, you know, staff member or leader that didn't say, yes, we, you know, we don't want, we don't want you to engage. We want you to kind of, you know, stay hands off. No, they all want you to engage. They all want you. They will all welcome your engagement. So as much as you can put into the association, you will get far more back out, uh, I believe. And I think you've seen that too. You're absolutely right. I mean, that sounds very cliche, but look, you get out exactly what you put in and think about that statement really because uh it, again it sounds cliche but it is very true all right well that's all the time we've got today hey i want to thank uh, our two guests today john and scott soroka with uh, soroka brand development john the website uh, where folks can find out more about uh, what you guys do soroka.com s-e-r-o-k-a.com all right well, hey, thanks again, guys, and uh, uh, make sure and subscribe to our channel on either YouTube or uh, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, and uh, follow us. We're, we'll be doing, again, uh, weekly podcasts all through uh, the month of May here, and then we'll be getting back to monthly podcasts after that. So uh, with that, we'll uh, see you next week. Thanks for joining us. <laughs>